Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Hi, this is Larson Hicks with Trinity Reformed Church. Before our regularly broadcasted program, I want to tell you about a conference we're putting on here in Huntsville this January. The conference is called Stronghold, and our theme for this first year is Biblical Masculinity. We're thrilled to have a great lineup of speakers. Pastor Vody Bauckham, Pastor Michael Foster from the It's Good to Be a Man podcast, Pastor George Grant, Dr. Ben Merkel, President of New St. Andrews College, and Pastor Rich Lusk. Tickets are on sale now at strongholdconference.com. Supplies are limited, so be sure to get one quick before we're all sold out. Thanks. Hope to see you there. Sermon by Matt Carpenter on December 20th, Lord's Day service. Text this morning is the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3. We'll read the first 14 verses. Beloved, now I write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment to us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing that first that scoffers will come in the last days of walking according to their own lust and say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they they willfully forget, and by the word of God the heavens were of old. And the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found of by him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Let's pray. Our Father in God, you have promised and you have fulfilled. You have promised and we wait for the final fulfillment. We thank you that your word is sure and steadfast. May we now receive the word with gladness. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Usually, when we think of Advent, we think of it as pre-Christmas. It's all those weeks leading up when you do everything Christmassy except half Christmas. You put up your tree, you hang your lights, 
you do everything else just waiting for that final time in which you can actually get to the celebrating. So we've actually started packing in a lot of early celebration, and then we end up being kind of, you know, feeling a little bit of a letdown. I mean, there's actually psychological studies on post-Christmas blues that come right after Christmas. You've had everything, and everybody goes into this slump. Well, that type of slump is easy after you have some type of high, and then you start to come down from it. We consider Advent as a time of waiting for the Lord's nativity, but how can you wait for something that's already happened? The nativity has come. All of us know that. We wouldn't be here if it had not happened. But Advent is not only a time when we remember God's people, how God's people waited in the past for Him to fulfill His promises. It's a time when we look forward to when He will come again in power. It takes a lot more to believe that He is working today and that He is coming again in power to restore all things fully and completely than it does to believe that He came already. I'm not, I'm not minimizing the first coming of Christ. But this morning I want to help maximize what the first coming points us to. And that is to the final restoration through Christ. The book of 2 Peter was written to warn the saints about false teachers and to encourage them to continue in the faith. These false teachers were trying to lead the people of God astray. And this old apostle, in his final days or months of life, is wanting to give the church hope in the midst of what is a tumultuous period of waiting. There's all these things that are going on for the Christians. Some of them have lost homes, they've lost family members, they've been separated from family members, and all the while they're waiting because they know that Jesus said, I will come and I will bring judgment on those who have opposed you. So, so this is hearkening back to Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24 and other places like that where he says he's going to come in judgment particularly on uh, the, the city of Jerusalem and on the temple. Because remember, that the primary persecution of Christians in the apostolic period was not by Rome. Read the book of Acts and tell me how many times Roman officials persecute Christians. We, we mostly think of persecution in what happened just after the apostles died. At the end of their lives, it, it was many of the, the apostles were being killed by others, but in Rome. But Peter's saying, look, God's judgment is going to come in time. But then he's, he's also pointing to something even beyond the judgment that was going to happen just in the next few years. He's pointing to the final the last judgment as well. So this morning I want to summarize uh, the message in 2 Peter chapter 3 in the form of three exhortations that Peter gives to the church. 
to encourage them in the midst of their waiting. The first exhortation is this. Open your vision or expand your vision. Why were these people that Peter called scoffers, why were they poking fun? Why were they making fun of Christianity? Why were they saying that these, that these promises of Jesus have not been fulfilled? Well, because it hadn't happened yet. And they've been waiting about this time over 30-something years since Jesus had walked the earth. And so the people who were the, the, the targets, the objects of the coming judgment, they were thinking, it's not going to happen. All these words, these, these promises, we're in the clear. You know, it's kind of like the kid, and, and, and it, all of you have been kids at times, at least that's the one. And you've, you've experienced when a parent would say, I'm going to discipline you for something. And then you wait on it, and you think after about 30 minutes, you forgot. <laughs> I mean, I'm good. I, I, I'm in good shape. And you start feeling really good about things. And then you hear the footsteps coming. And you think, uh-oh. And then the footsteps go by, and you say, see, totally forgot. That's what these scoffers were doing. They thought, we are in, you know, is Jesus going to come? No, he's not the rebellious here say, we see this in verse 4, everything is just like it always was. Nothing has changed. Where is the promise of His coming? These people deny that God was coming in judgment. And in particular, it says that they neglect the flood, which was God's first judgment of notorious rebels. They don't acknowledge that the flood itself was judgment. Verse 5, these willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were bold and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished. So they, they, they choose to forget. It doesn't mean that they didn't acknowledge. I mean, everyone had a flood narrative in their history. Pagan, Christian, Jewish, didn't matter. Everybody knew about flood. The problem is they did not acknowledge that the flood was judgment. It was simply just a natural event that happened. They said it, that is not God's judgment. So, so they adopted what's known as a materialist or a naturalist mindset. It says that everything that happens is just random events. Now, now, now this was the kind of the secularist pagan view, but yet a lot of those, even some of the Jews at the time, they said, yeah, it was a flood, but it was not on it was not on people like us. Have you ever noticed how even the people who believe in judgment don't believe that it happens to them? Okay? But you know what? Christians, that includes us. We are really good at identifying the 3,274 sins that our neighbor has. Some of which deserve God's wrath. 
But when we look in the mirror, man, that's a sweet and clean image. Oh my goodness. The light of glory shines on this face. Because in verse 7, he says that the heavens and earth which are now preserved by the same word. What does that mean? It means that God's word, that the, the, not just the original creating, the, the, the word spoken in creation, but that his word continues to preserve. Or another word is sustain the creation. God didn't just work once thousands of years ago and is sitting back watching this wonderful movie to see what's happening. No, Peter says, and he's telling the church, God is actively working to sustain what's going on. Everything that happens is at God's work. We would not, as Christians, say that God has removed himself but yet we often get into the perspective that he doesn't really act that much. Because, you know, there are certain things that we don't believe. Well, we don't believe that he continues to give ongoing revelation that's the equivalent to Scripture. But we have to be really careful that we don't, in, in being afraid of, of, in, of saying that God is still... Being afraid that, of saying that he does everything and that he's still speaking and working, that we can go into another perspective that says actually he doesn't do much of anything. I mean, he may take care of a few individual problems. If I pray really hard, he may do something individually, but he's not actively working out everything in life. Peter says, no, we should expand our vision. Just because we don't see God at work does not mean he's not working. The problem is ours if we refuse to acknowledge, if we refuse to see that he is active in everything. So trust, believe, expand your perspective to see that God is active in every area of life. So open your vision. But the second exhortation is to revise your timetable. Revise your timetable. Peter goes on to explain why God would wait in coming. God's timing does not look like ours. He does not act in a time we expect. So Peter quotes from Psalm 90, verse 4. And uh, in, in 2 Peter 3.8, he quotes Psalm 90, verse 4, which says, A thousand years in your sight is yesterday when it is past. And this is not to say that prophetic timing doesn't matter. He's not 
arguing that, that God does not understand time. But Peter is saying that God doesn't act as soon as we want. There are plenty of things we want Him to do yesterday. We would like for Him to move. We would like for Him to act. We want Him to come and judge those who oppose Him. To, to judge those who are participating and promoting wickedness. The Jews who opposed the Christians were they were opposition. They were harming friends and family of the people of the church. But when Peter says that a thousand years in the Lord is as one day, he's not just answering the scoffers. He's not telling those who deny the coming of Christ that time with God doesn't matter. He's telling the Christians, Peter's telling the Christians that with the Lord, He works when the time is right. Not when you think the time is right. Because God is, the reason is that because God is gracious. He is patient and He is full of compassion. Have you ever wondered why don't we go from verse 8? Do not forget that the, that the Lord one day is as a thousand years to verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. That's not count slackness. What's the transition there? He's saying that God has a purpose in waiting. In what you consider to be letting all of these wicked things go on, God is drawing people to Himself through that time. He is accomplishing things in other people's lives besides ours. And in particular, He has a people who He has chosen before the foundation of the world that He is bringing to Himself. And He is not going to bring judgment, to bring destruction, until the people He's chosen are brought to faith. In His infinite wisdom, God simultaneously draws people to Himself while giving the wicked enough rope to bring greater judgment on themselves. And all the time, and in every avenue, while the wicked are becoming more and more wicked and hardened in their sin, and the righteous are becoming more and more, in some cases, desperate, and some who were wicked are now becoming, uh, are being converted to righteousness. All the while, while this is going on, in a few cases that we may see, he's doing the same thing in millions and millions of other cases, like that, billions of other cases, across his world. We don't even know most of these situations. And all the time, furthering is plain. We rarely see how God is working even in our home lives in the present. But thankfully, you can look back at your life and you can see how He was working in the past in certain instances. And you certainly can look at Scripture 
Scripture, and you can see how God was working. If you put yourself in the situation of someone like Abraham, at any given point in time, before Isaac came, how easy would it be to believe God's promise? Think about the first time Abraham received the promise of God that he would be the father of many nations. He was probably around 75 years old. How old was Abraham when he actually had a son? The son of promise, that is, Isaac. A hundred years old. Wait 25 years for God's promise? What about Joshua? Think about Joshua. Joshua, when he went with Moses and all the rest of Israel, Joshua and Caleb and ten other spies went to the promised land. They came back. Ten spies gave a negative report. Joshua and Caleb gave the positive report. And they said, let's go. And the, God said, because these ten refused to go, and the people believed them, you're going to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Imagine being Joshua and Caleb over that 40-year period. If anybody had cause to complain, it would not be the people who whined and griped. And put yourself in Joshua's position. You think you're going to be blessing your fellow Hebrews? It's going to be hard. We cannot see what God is doing right now. But we can look back and see what He has done in our own lives. We can look back in Scripture and see how He's worked. And that is what He gives us. That's the example. Those are the examples that He gives us so that we can trust that He is bringing about His grand plan, the divine tapestry of grace that is continuing to unfold little bit by little bit. You may think that God is just letting you wither away. But He's actually working in you and preparing you for what's next. And this requires faith. Nothing less than faith. We trust that God is gracious towards us. Peter reminds them that God is gracious. He's compassionate towards us and towards all of His chosen he is accomplishing his purposes, but he is not in a hurry. We are in a hurry. Our prayer is, Lord, sanctify me right now. Can you please go ahead and bring me to the point of my perfection now? But if you consider what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that He's working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That picture of a, the weight of glory, glory there is pictured as something that is very heavy. It's like brilliant gold. And so imagine, if you've ever worked out before, you know you can't start out with, let's say, let's say you're bench pressing, you can't start out with 350 pounds the first day. Okay? If you've not worked out before. If you do, it would crush you. That's not far off of the way of glory God is working in us. God is working in us things that we can't see or understand. And if all of it would just drop on us. If the person that He has designed us to be, that He intends for us, and that we will be by His grace, because He's the 
done new work in you. We'll be faithful to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. If he were to just make us that person, we could not handle that right now. It'd be too much. So it takes a little bit at a time, day by day, working, growing, praying, repenting, confessing, repenting some more. Trusting in you. So we must revise our timetable. We cannot give up on what God is doing. We can't take this into our own hands, like Abraham, who decides, this, I'm not having a son in the time that I want to. His wife makes a terrible suggestion, which makes really good sense at the time humanly speaking, and he adopts it. There's still consequences coming from that choice. So don't give up in impatience about what God is doing. Trust God's promises in faith. So open your vision, Peter says. Revise your timetable, but lastly, look to, or look at the end. Verse 10, Peter says, But the day the Lord will come is a thief in the night. He points to what's coming. And Peter says, It's, it's good, it's judgment. It's a great fire, he said, that will consume the elements and usher in the new creation. Now, this language is apocalyptic. And, you know, if, if you read. If you just read the Bible, and then you take a very modernist perspective, if you don't read older literature, and I'm not saying that older, older literature is only, you, that the only people who are educated can read, any of you can go pick up a book that was written by one of the ancients and see how they talk about things. Major catastrophic changes have this apocalyptic language. Things about you know the heavens burning. Or, or how about Joel? Joel chapter two, where he says that the sun will be darkened and the moon turned into blood. That sounds absolutely hideous. Very scary. But but Peter, thirty-something years prior at Pentecost, after he preached at Pentecost, and the tongues of fire came down and rested on the saints. And then Peter preached his sermon at Pentecost. He quotes Joel. And he says to them, Joel chapter 2, what I just mentioned, he says, this day is this fulfilled in your hearing. He had 3,000 saved. Guess what? Nobody said at that time. Uh-uh. Whoa, time out. Excuse me. The sun didn't darken. The moon turned into blood. I don't believe you, Peter. No, they didn't say that because they understood the language there does not have to refer to literal destruction of the sky, of the moon. It's a picture. It's a metaphor. It represents a drastic change in the political or the cultural conditions. And for the Jews at the time, the, the, those those people to whom, 
how many are scoffing who are making fun of the Christians. This is referring to temple worship. The, 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 the word there in Greek where he says that the heavens will pass away with a great noise. That word, heavens, is used in other places in Colossians chapter 2, in the book of Hebrews, and it's used or it's translated as elements. It refers to things in the old to a lot of the, the practices and procedures that the Jews were expected to follow. Now, of course, with Christianity, with the coming of Christ, those old covenant expectations were passing away. And then, once God's judgment came on those who had oppressed His church, all those old things would finally be done away with. And if you read the history of what happened in the Jewish wars with Rome, for years there was a type of league between some of the Jewish leaders and the Romans. And then all, almost all of a sudden, no one saw it coming in Judea. Lined up and laid siege. They marched to Jerusalem. They they laid a siege around it, and everyone was saying, "Whoa, uh, what happened to our agreement?" And the Roman general said, "It's over." And so there was a lot of questions, as, as Peter's saying, and this is what I'm telling you right now. It, it happened after this letter that Peter wrote. But they sacked the city. They destroyed the temple. And overnight, the enemy of Christianity, its greatest enemy up to that time, was hollowed out. Its belief system was just a shell of what it had been. So that was the context of what Peter's saying. That's the, the, the reference to the day of the Lord. That, that, that was the, the, the immediate event. But this also points to something even greater. I mean, that the fact that God brought His judgment as Jesus promised in, in various places in, in Gospels, that, that is great news. But there's even greater news beyond that. Today, we are still in a period of waiting. We look for what Peter talks about, the culmination of the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which, in which righteousness dwells. We enjoy, at times, just a little taste of this. We've all had experiences given to us as gifts from God when we enjoy fellowship with other saints, when we enjoy things at a meal, when we enjoy worship in the church. There are times when our emotions and our spirit and our physical body, they're so closely interconnected and united that the praise of God just pours out from us. The joy of the Lord is real within us. There are those times. small taste 
we want this. Hopefully we look for this. We anticipate that this is going to come because this is the intention. The life that we have here right now is not the best life that we can ever hope for. It's good, and we should be thankful. But this is not it. This is not the end. Peter's words are not just to the Christians to have faith, but it's to help cultivate hope. And at times, as all of you know, hope can be pretty difficult to keep. It's tough to have hope when we face personal tragedy. When we work and we don't see results. When we think we're just about to cross the finish line and then all of a sudden the race gets turned upside down and we get turned upside down and we see, oh, it looks like I've been going the wrong direction and didn't know it. When we see the haters of Christianity, the people who oppose us, seeming they're growing in power, they're growing in influence, and we think, this is not the way it's supposed to work. How do we continue in hope? Not just in wishful thinking. That's not the hope I'm talking about. Not just like, man, I wish that would happen. As a synonym for I hope this would happen. But how do we keep this, this, this positive expectation that this is going to happen and I can smile just like the Christians who were burned to death or who had their, their, their bodies destroyed by animals and, and they can do so quoting from the Psalms and trusting that God is going to bring about divine purposes in this. I want to point you to a book in the Old Testament, the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, chapter 4. And we get a picture here of what this will look like. Malachi 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the crowd, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow back like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord. Remember, the way that we cultivate hope is that we remember the Son of Righteousness. That is, Jesus will arise. And this is not talking specifically about His first coming in His nativity, which was in great humility. No splendor, no pomp. He is coming and will bring healing. The rays of this sun will bring healing and joy and strength and relief from infirmity and sickness and sorrow and He will restore all things in perfect justice and grace. 
He is, after all, the son of righteousness. He will give His people strength. And He will strengthen His people so that they will go out with joy. Do you not love the picture? You'll go out like stall-fed calves. Like, like the favored cat, like the favored cows of the farmer. The ones that he has given special privileges to. All winter long. And now, the door will be open and you'll be let out. And you're not just going to go out. You're going to go out and you are going to trample down the ashes of the enemy whom God has burned up. You say, I like this. When do we get started? I don't know. Because right now we're in the period of still being, as it were, in the stall. We're being trained, taught, nourished, fed. He will give His people strength. They will, as Isaiah says, they will go out with joy. They will be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth with sin. They will clap their hands for joy. This is God's promise. And at times, we even now get to see these smaller judgments, these small pictures of what's coming when we see Him raise up rulers and then bring them down. When we see principalities and powers who are brought low. Nations rise and fall according to the plan of God. And incidentally, if you're expecting the United States to be the, the, the last true bastion of Christendom forever and always, you're going to be disappointed. But I'll tell you the kingdom that will stand forever. It's the kingdom of God. Though we remember the star over Bethlehem, which marked His first coming, that star is nothing compared with the Son of Righteousness who will bring final restoration and justice to His earth, to the entire cosmos. When you look at your Christmas tree and you see the star on the top, don't just think about the star over the Savior in Bethlehem. When you see that, remember that that star points to an even greater sun who will one day arise and who will shine forth His light over all the earth and whose glory is pictured in just a small way in the star that once shone at the birth of our Savior. So then what do we do? Where, how do we get these things? What, what, is, what, are we to, what are we to do right now? And Peter ends with probably the most anti-revolutionary message that he could give in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found of Him in peace, without spot, and blameless. What? Sounds like he's just telling us to go out and live... Christian lives and not anything, you know, where's the machine guns? Where's the, where, where's all this great stuff that, this is the great stuff. This is the message that overturns the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. 
calls the saints to remember those of old who waited for God's judgment. He says, be like them. Walk without spot, blameless. Confess your sin. Be at peace with one another. So while we anticipate and look for the coming of Christ, keep walking in obedience to Him and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word and the gifts that we have received. Thank You for the promise of the coming of our Savior. And may we cultivate the hope that You've given in His coming. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.